Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at schoolstatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, episode 212, and I'm your host, Nick Ortigo. This week, what are the predictions for education in the year 2022? Stay with us. Dismissed is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each week, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This week, our guest tells us what higher ed should be doing to better prepare students for the workforce. I have a PhD in comparative literature, so I I don't remember anyone ever talking to me about what I might do for work. And the only thing I could think of to do after I graduated was go to graduate school. Hello, everybody. Nick Ortigo here, and I'm joined by friend, director of curriculum and instruction and co-host, Christina Pollard. Christina, happy 2022 to you. Happy New Year to you and all of our listeners. I'm just so optimistic that 22 is going to be a great year for everybody. <laughs> I love Seriously. your optimism. Can I? I don't want to be like Captain Negative, but I feel like we had this conversation at the beginning of 2021. <laughs> well, we did, and that was after coming off of my school being shut down. You know, into quarantine, the whole school quarantined, and just that struggle. I want it to be positive, and you know, you have to speak it for it to exist. Right. But today, I just feel differently. Our country has been through so much in the last two years that I just feel like, you know what, there's there's got to be nowhere but up from here. Yeah, it's kind of like um, we're getting better at this and this meaning living with a pandemic or endemic, I guess, kind of depending on where you look at the stage that we're in right now. And um, I want to say probably I'm trying to reflect on maybe where we were January, you know, of last year, we knew, at least at that point, there was a vaccine on the horizon, it was probably already being administered at that time. I can't quite remember. Um, it was. It was. It was getting started um, because I actually was vaccinated about three weeks after the first of the year. Right. Um, but it was. It was the middle of the first year of teaching and learning and COVID, and it was insane. All of the different things that I experienced as a school administrator, and um, just you know coming off of our school being shut down in the month of December and thinking about the things that, you know, went on in our, our, our son's school community with quarantines. And now an entire year later from that, um, I just think that my perspective has changed simply because yes, we've adapted, we've been, we've pushed through, um, you know, positives, deaths, um, struggles through this pandemic, but, I just feel like things are going to get better. You have a, a COVID pill, you know, on the horizon. They're talking about a fourth shot and many people are saying, hey, I'm not doing that. But at the end of the day, um, I just think things are going to get better. And you know what? Politicians and doctors and so what? They don't have all of the answers. And I think we should just all be optimistic, work together, um, you know, listen to science and do the right things. Yeah, so... We're here. We are at the start of 2022. We haven't quite started school back at the time of this recording. I 
don't anticipate, this is just my prediction, I'll let you go next, but I predict that most school districts will try to go back, even though we are very much in the midst of um, a new strain of this virus that seems to be spreading very fast. I think we're going to probably go back to the classroom. We'll see lots of mask mandates, I would expect, as we kind of head back into the classroom in January. What are your thoughts? I do agree that, you know, we're we're all going to try to go back to school and do what's right and follow our protocols, reminding um, parents and teachers, students, community of what our protocols are. But I also think that um, district administrators will move pretty quickly. Many of us report back tomorrow um, and many will move pretty quickly to try to assess the situation, take a look at their staff numbers, how many have been impacted mm-hmm. by positive results or, or quarantines and move forward from there. And in the event that, you know, we feel like um, the school communities have been impacted by by these positive numbers, then, yeah, you have to move into plan B, which is, you know, your COVID plans. But I'm optimistic still in that sense that um, I don't think that we, it will be so crucial that we will have to switch back to hybrid or, um, you know, completely virtual I I don't see that happening, but I do see that we're going to have to push and make sure everybody tightens back up on wearing their mask. Even with so many of us educators being vaccinated, we are seeing that vaccinated people, you know, are having breakthrough results. Well, and what we could see, I guess, is I think you kind of mentioned it is where you are with the staff. Like, do you have enough people Mm -hmm. to run the school? Should it come sweeping through your school? And so so that's something we'll assess first thing um, when we report back. The good thing is we come back to professional development days and um, teachers will work in their classrooms and prepare for students to return. And it'll give operations um, an opportunity to assess our staffing needs and, you know, see if we need to make any uh sudden changes to our schedules or anything before students return. There's a um, high school teacher. He's actually out of the Sacramento area. He's been teaching for the past 19 years. His name's Larry Ferlazzo. Um, For a decade, he's been writing a column making annual education predictions. Um, Yes, he's really popular. Right. It gets picked up by the Washington Post. Um, And so the Washington Post, as of yesterday, has asked him to look into his crystal ball for 2022. Um, His list of things for 2022, he is honest that it's somewhat of a pessimistic list. I figure we should go through his list, though, and just kind of, you know, talk about whether we agree with it or or maybe there's something missing and so forth. So you ready to kind of take a look at some of his things? All right. So here we are with the 2022 predictions. His first one says there will be a big increase in teacher retirement retirements in the spring and summer, leading to a teacher shortage that will make this school year look like a picnic. Um, and then he even kind of jumps to 2023 and says, due to the staff shortages that we're going to experience in 2022, it's going to lead to even more people quitting in 2023. Um, what are your thoughts on that? I hate to uh, you know, be negative because I believe in being as positive as possible, but it is very true. We had a, a, a number of teachers, I'm sure, across the nation retire here at the middle of the year, Christmas break. Um, but we, we are expecting to see retirements across the country at the end of the year. But it's not just the teaching shortage. Um, I believe our uh, school administrators are um, looking at leaving the profession, too. It's just not the same. It's difficult. And everyone talks about how hard it is for teachers, but they forget the plight of a school administrator. He says that uh, districts with skilled leadership will have already developed, quote, grow your own and teacher residency programs to recruit new students um, and programs to support the educators who choose to stay. I love that he shared that. Yeah. So so it's not like 
you know, yeah, it's pessimistic, but we might be able to do something about it. Maybe you should take a look at your programs. To Well, here are the positives. Yes, um, you know, we have some local universities that are working with school districts um, to build the, the Grow Your Own programs. But not only that, states have relaxed requirements for licensure to pull people in from the business sector. The only mm-hmm. thing that I worry about is making sure that we have quality candidates and people who, you know, will will take teaching seriously um, since they've relaxed so many of the standards. And then in doing so, you know, how does that make the profession look when you have all of these teachers who, if you really understood how hard it is for us to get licensed, how much we pay for our advanced degrees and professional development, and then now, you know, we're able to bring in so many other people with um, fewer requirements and we still have not increased the pay. It's just, it's a tough situation all the way around. All right. Another thing on his list, mask mandates in many schools will continue through the fall and will, in fact, increase in number. Um, what are your thoughts on that? I agree with that. Um, it just, I think it depends on where you live in the country. Um, many school districts still have their mass mandates in place, but perhaps, and some of those controversial areas, perhaps they'll reverse their decisions and make those, put those masks in place. I don't know if you call my response to this optimistic or not, but I, I think that this variant is going to sweep through areas so quickly that yes, we will see mass mandates, but it will not be for the entire fall semester. Like, for example, I would say that we we are like headed into peak right now where we live in Mississippi. I think by February, we will have peaked and the cases will start to drop. I, I feel like that's how quickly this is going to happen in, in about a four or five, six week period. Um, and then you have to worry about what variant will come after that. <laughs> right. Or or do we just move into, I mean, I've been reading a lot about more of just saying like it becomes more of an endemic or it's not necessarily a novel virus anymore. Our bodies do have some response to all variants. Um, and so it's more like we're living with the flu like we do now. We'll be living with right. COVID. And, and yes, while there will probably be deaths, um, more of us will be able to, uh, you know, have the antibodies to fight it. Um, so I like your response. I don't know. We'll see. I don't know if that's optimistic or not, because it still sounds kind of like, Ugh, yikes. Uh, no, but. I think it's optimistic because you're saying you don't see us going as far as next August. Right. Um, beginning schools, school year with with mask. And so, you know, I don't think it's negative at all. But that basically means too, we're all probably going to get this. Um, which, you know, that's, uh, that's kind of the reality of the situation. But the truth hurts sometimes. <laughs> yeah, right. All right. But, uh, anyhow, another thing on his list, uh, state standardized test scores will be down. Many school officials will not see that a major cause of these drops, uh, will be that the districts are only giving lip service to social, emotional lear- learning, mental health support, and genuine accelerated learning. So basically he's saying districts are talking the talk, but not walking the walk when it comes to those things. And as a result, state standardized test scores will be down. What are your thoughts? I have to disagree with that. Um, I think when we think about all the things that communities are going through, um, right down to your teachers as well, many districts are struggling in that sense to provide that social emotional support, but we're trying. And so I have to disagree. Um, are we doing it perfectly? Probably not, but more so than ever before. He goes on to say that if if you're a district that, according to him, is giving lip service to these these methods, um, he says that some of those districts will instead put their money and energy behind remediation and double down on adding instructional time and a drill to kill type of method. And they'll continue to appear dumbfounded when they get the same results over and over again by just doubling down on, on those old methods. 
And what he's saying is pretty accurate, but I just don't see how you can do drill and kill anymore um, with the type of assessments that we're giving. You have to teach to the standard. Um, so it just, you know, I guess that just depends on where you are and what district you're in. I will say that there are some schools who were able to make major gains and growth during a pandemic, but across the board, we did see, um, significant declines, um, in areas of reading and math. And we, as a district administrator, I want to remain positive and hopeful. We're trying to provide all the support that we can, um, for students and teachers, but, you know, in the greater scheme of things, can we really control this situation um, that we can't control outside of the classroom? Right. Um, Next on his list, he says, there will be some major consolidations in the educational technology world as more educators conclude that yes, our students need more personalized learning and no, technology might not be the only and not even main vehicle through which to provide that learning. Uh, Small class sizes, listening, connecting to student interest and building on relationships can lead to better learning. And he says, bye-bye unicorns, I guess referring to some sort of, you know, magic bullet that allows for personalized learning. I think we've all agreed with that for a very long time. And, mm-hmm. and I think the pandemic has pushed us into the direction we needed to be in. And we talked about this on previous episodes. This next one. Um, so since last time we recorded, we I think we were going into the Christmas break like, oh, yeah, President Biden's Build Back Better plan stands a pretty good chance of passing, which means universal pre-K. <laughs> and uh, somewhere along the way over the Christmas holidays, uh, due to, uh, I guess you can say Joe Manchin out of West Virginia, the senator there, um, kind of pulled the plug on the ability to push that through the Senate, and it just completely fell apart. So we really don't know where we are with that bill, if or, or some sort of version of the bill will happen. Larry here says President Biden's Build Back Better plan, or some version of it, will eventually pass. It's unclear whether or not it'll have universal pre-K and a child tax credit extension. Um, but I think he feels like something to help pre-K will come along um, some form or fashion. What are your thoughts there? My thoughts are I'm sitting back and waiting to see. Right. Yeah. It's like we, we kind of hope so. I think universal pre-K is something right. that could really change the system. But, uh, you know, that's Washington, D.C. for you. Mm-hmm. Um, next up, uh, he says, despite recent school shootings... Efforts to reduce police presence in schools will continue. A high priority will be made to twin these changes with an increase in other harm reduction and safety strategies, including restorative practices, major experiments and research on how to implement these strategies, particularly in secondary schools, will take place and their results will be widely disseminated. Um, what do you think? Are you hearing anything about a reduction in police presence? I hadn't really heard that. I am not. Um, and I will, you know, have to say, just speaking on our school district in general, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty fond of our school resource officers. They have great relationships with the community and the students. Right. They're a positive presence in our buildings. They're smiling. They're teaching safety. Um, but I also think that that's the the culture of our, our district, um, you know, that makes sure everyone understands that they are there to protect teachers and students from, you know, harms that may come from outside of the school and not to police children and our school leaders lead their buildings. Um, so I just, I guess it just depends. Now, you know, we both see um, different pieces of news come out here and there um, about school resource officers handling children in very aggressive ways. Um, I'm pretty proud to say that that hasn't happened in our area, not since I've been a part of our district. Um, and I just think that it has to be, you know, 
clear expectations and what what message you're sending um, when you have an, uh, a school resource department. Yeah, I agree. I, I partially agree with what he's saying and the fact that he's talking about restorative practices. I think, you know, you're a big believer in it. Mm-hmm. We've covered it on the show, I feel like. Yeah. But I feel like that's a separate vehicle and it's almost like separate from having police presence in the school. It's more of just like a way we we discipline in our in our school. Um, the police presence, I feel like... I th- if I'm hearing you right, we've kind of concluded that police officers on campus have value outside of emergencies and, and whether that's a student, you know, being able to have somebody to trust and talk to. And, yep. and, you know, so I feel like they're here to stay in my mind, but I don't know. Well, you got to think about mentorship, um, crisis preparation, uh, safety training. There's a lot more uh, mm-hmm. involved with your SROs if that is part of your strategic plan. Right. Yeah, good point. This last one's kind of funny. Um, he says private foundations like uh, Gates and Chan Zuckerberg will continue coming up with ideas about what schools should do, finding people who will accept their money to do them, and then concluding that it didn't work. Their staff will continue believing that they are the smartest people in the room and not bother listening to ideas from educators who actually teach in classrooms every day. So, I really want to just burst, burst out into hysterical laughter. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I, if I wanted to try to look for the optimism and I may need to do this like which foundation like program has had success like I don't know the answer to that I don't know I don't remember we talked about LeBron James years ago and I know his program looked like a good idea I've never actually followed up to say like how's that working out no I haven't followed up either so maybe maybe there are some wins out there, but uh, yeah, Mr. Larry uh, Ferlazzo, he seems a little bit I don't know jaded, and you can't blame him a little bit after you know being on the job right. 19 years and then having these past two years that we've been dealing with the pandemic. But uh, I think he's he's kind of ready to kind of knock some sense into the rest of us. But it also makes you wonder: Is he trying to be cynical? Does he want us to get a laugh out of his list? <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe you know the headline with the, some truth to it. You know, all embedded <laughs> the headline in the Washington Post is actually nine. Nine mostly pessimistic education predictions for 2022 from a teacher. So that's kind of what they led with. I think that, uh, you know, maybe it is a little bit tongue in cheek, but uh, all in all, uh, do you have anything that you expect to happen in 2022 that uh, maybe should be on the list that's even on the positive side? Uh, absolutely not. <laughs> I'm, I'm, that's just not my style. That's not my MO. I'm taking, I take one day at a time and, you know, I'm pretty methodical about trying to solve problems that, that hit me. I like to be a problem solver in advance, but just right here on the spot. No, yeah. I, I can't add one, to this list. <laughs> one goal that I'm going to try to do, I'm going to try to get an expert in the the metaverse you're going to hear a lot about that in 2022 and tying that to education i don't think it's going to necessarily be a reality in 2022 but i think you are going to start to see more and more talk about it um and this is means more than just really you know virtual reality and an augmented uh reality i think we're this is kind of the next step there so i want to learn more about that i'll try to get a guest on the show who can maybe take us down that path and, and that's one thing though that i think we'll hear a lot about over the next 12 months Um, Well, Christina, are you ready for uh, today's Bright Idea? Bring it on. Our guest in today's Bright Idea segment is a professor at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Nancy Hoffman is also a vice president and senior advisor at Jobs for the Future, a national nonprofit based in Boston, focused on improving educational and workforce outcomes for low-income young people and adults. And she's here to talk about her new book, Teaching Students About the World of Work. Dr. Hoffman, welcome to Class Dismissed. Thank you. Uh, I, as I was reading through your very impressive resume, I see that you have 
several ties to some of the great four-year institutions the United States has to offer. So on the surface, uh, one might assume, or I guess I assume, that you're probably a strong proponent of the four-year university system. But as I was kind of working through your book, teaching students about the world of work, it appears that you are equally in favor, or if not, maybe even more so in favor, of a two-year community college system that is a pathway to a career. Am I correct in this assessment? Uh, Well, you're not incorrect, let's put it that way. I think the liberal arts education is, is a wonderful thing. And it's not something that everyone has to give up if they start in a two-year institution. But if you gave me a choice between a young person growing up in poverty and a young person uh, getting a two-year degree and skills with the option of going on to further education at some point, I would certainly choose the latter. So uh, it would be great if everyone who would like to go off to the what used to be the, the sheltered place of a, a residential four-year college and, and read great books and learn computer science, that's an option for relatively few people in the United States. And is that really your motivation um, for, for what you do with JFF and writing this book? Absolutely. Uh, by the, this book, by the way, while the while the title is teaching students about the world of work, the subtitle is a challenge to post secondary educators, and that's this. So this is not a book that's about what you should teach students. It's a book raising questions for faculty, liberal arts, and other faculty about what students should know about everything from the role of work in human lives to how careers are built and what labor market information is and how social capital operates. And in general, many faculty, especially those who are who, who should be helping their students think about the labor market, uh, are relatively ignorant about that and don't think of ways to connect student learning in the disciplines or in skills courses directly with the world of work and careers. Well, how did we get there? How did we have that disconnect? Um, Well, I think we had that, I would say probably until maybe, maybe a few years before the, the recession of 2008, which now seems like a hundred years ago, what we used to say is get a college degree and everything will be all right. So there two ways in which we got to where we are now. One is that the recession said a lot to people about um, what what kind of education is recession-proof. And many, many liberal arts graduates found themselves unemployed or underemployed. And so we began to have a much greater emphasis on skills. At the same time, the cost of higher ed has been rising largely because the state portion in public higher ed has gotten much smaller and probably among the elite institutions because they can. So you had rising costs um, without the result of good jobs always at the end. And that got people more focused on uh, the relationship between education and work. The other is that Really, until this, uh, the, the 21st century, community colleges have always existed, but without a great deal of support or visibility. And as people began to, uh, push for more low income young people to go 
to school and they began to look at the data because they were interested in combating growing inequality, they saw that relatively few students who started in community colleges actually graduated, that many community colleges had strong workplace programs, but many of them were not well aligned with labor market needs. So the community college has gotten uh, a higher profile and has become, as the data shows, a really good option for a first career, since if you get technical skills, um, although we'll see what happens next in the COVID economy, Mm -hmm. uh, until then, um, getting good technical skills would land you a job and enable you at least to provide for yourself and make some decisions about what you wanted to do next. Before a student is even has to make that decision of, you know, am I going to go to a community college or a four-year uh, university or, or not at all? I mean, I know a yeah. lot of times uh, a student will, you know, they'll apply for their their grants and, and sometimes they're offered loans or often they're offered loans as well. And and they have to make that decision of whether or not, you know, I, I sign on to this loan. Do you think we're educating those kids, those students well enough about what it means to take on that debt and, and what they're going to get on the other side of that debt? I would say there is a continuum. If you have parents who understand the labor market and who are not immigrants, so are familiar with, you know, the, the funding system and how loans get paid back, you probably can do quite well with a loan. But for low income students, we see over and over again, many of them are sold the notion that just get a college degree, take a loan if you need to. And everything will be fine. And then, of course, it isn't, especially if you can't get a well-paying job or you have some disaster in your family where having no assets or savings uh, puts you in financial jeopardy. I know in the book you talk a lot about positioning work at the center of community college. But but what does that mean? What does that look like? When students come into community colleges, they're given tons of information. And it's it's not derelict that you come in and nobody gives you any information. You're given lots of information about how to study, where the career service office is, what kind of jobs there are. Uh, you probably will see an advisor or take some kind of inventory of interests. But that is not enough. And then many students just pick a major and don't see anyone in career services till the end of their their education, if at all. Career service offices are understaffed and generally in some dark hallway that r- rarely people <laughs> can find. Strata has done some interesting um, focus groups and interviews about the use of career services. I think it's about 20% of students in college who use them. Um, not the fault of career services alone, But the notion that you go to college to get a career means that you need to be thinking not just in, uh, say, a a programming course or a course for a radiology technologist, but in a variety of courses about what what preparation for work is, and not necessarily in just an instrumental way, although that is useful. But you know, why do you want to work? What, what, why, how do people earn their livings? What are the basic needs that work serves? What are the, what are the higher needs, as one of the chapters uh, discusses? And this is a, a topic about which 
most about which many, many colleges, community colleges and four-year colleges are relatively silent. The last thing I would say, though, about in well-funded institutions, and particularly four-year ones, because this almost doesn't exist in two-year institutions, there are internships both on campus and off. You can work in a lab and see if you like being a scientist. You can go work in a business that uh, in the summer that belongs to an alum. There are almost no uh, widespread internship opportunities available in community colleges. And those are the students who often need, who, or I would say, who need the most to explore the, the world of work. So there are myriad things that colleges should do and can do to help students not just see the degree as an endpoint, but a career, citizenship, uh, a, a satisfying economic existence. I think if you would talk to most professors at a community college or yeah. even a four-year university, they would understand that goal and they would probably have that goal in mind. And the, the goal of being, I'm here to, to prepare this student for the workforce in the best way I possibly can. But clearly, it's not happening or you probably wouldn't be writing this book. And, and so what is systemically broken? Yeah. First of all, I don't think I agree with you. Okay. Um, for in the elite colleges, professors are, are generally preparing their best students to be what they are. So historians and literary critics and uh, biologists, without thinking much, particularly in the liberal arts, about what you're going to to do. Most most of those. I mean, I I have a PhD in comparative literature, so I, I don't remember anyone ever talking to me about what I might do for work. And the only thing I could think of to do after I graduated was go to graduate school and get a PhD in comparative literature. Right. Uh, so I, I, I don't think anyone wishes students ill or thinks that it's not a good question to ask what you're going to do. But I have talked to many uh, professors in both community colleges and four-year institutions who say, my goal is to teach my discipline. And what the student does with it is for them to figure out or for career services or an advisor to help them with. And I don't disagree entirely with that. But I do think that, for example, uh, Bunker Hill Community College in Boston that we work with a lot has learning communities for entering students. And it's really beginning to try and think through how do you keep this career conversation going throughout a student's education. So one of the, so they're doing two different things. I've been very involved with Gutman Community College. It's a new community college, part mm -hmm. of the CUNY system. There's a chapter about uh, their ethnographies of work course. So that's a liberal arts course that Bunker Hill has adapted. And it raises a wide range of questions about the world of work in an intellectual context but it has a lab that goes with it in which students think about how do I present myself? How do I write my resume? How do I do an elevator pitch? What do I say in an interview? But it's very much connected to this much broader context about what the labor market is and how jobs are developed and how careers happen. And we've done numerous focus groups and interviews with low-income students who really you know, they they believe the myth. I'm going to have six figures, one person said to me when I finish my two-year degree. That person is missing a lot of 
really important information and will have a rude shock. And it's very possible she can go through the whole community college um, degree program and and never really have anyone help them directly with that kind of question. I saw the chapter on Gutman Community College. Tell me a little bit more about them. And first, where are they located? Sure. So uh, that's City University of New York. It's the biggest public education system in the country, unless I'm missing the way uh, the UC system in California is built. But it's a huge system with 500,000 students. (laughs) So both community colleges and four-year institutions and major graduate schools. It used to be the sort of engine of, of economic mobility for immigrant groups coming into New York City, and it still plays that role in in many ways. So maybe about 10 years ago, they started a brand new community college with a completely different design, and that's Gutman. And uh, it right now is located right in back of the New York Public Library on 40th Street in temporary facilities, And uh, but that's where you would find it. And the idea was to really respond to a lot of research about how students learn in general, and more particularly about the constraints on low-income students and what kind of education they need. It was designed really to prepare students for uh, careers in New York City. It's a New York City is a particularly uh, complicated or used to be complicated labor market, very bifurcated, mm-hmm. with lots of low-income in- low jobs and a lot of professional jobs. And Gutman, in a way, was attempting to prepare students for to get out of the low-income jobs and in, into middle to higher-wage jobs. So it's a it's a totally different uh, structure, and everyone takes the same courses and goes full time the first year. So ethnographies of work is one course. The second is a city seminar about New York, and a third one is statistics, if I'm remembering correctly. So if you were speaking to uh, a room full of community college professors, what would be your message to them about, you know, making sure their students are prepared for the workplace? You know, the thing that in some ways stands out the most is the lack of social capital that uh, that students... uh, that low-income students, of course, have social capital. Every community has social capital, but there's a specific kind of social capital that is important in entering the labor market. And that has to do with networking and making connections. And my guess about you is that somebody's called you in the last six months and said, do you know so-and-so? And And if so, could you tell me a little bit about X or Y? That happens all the time. I mean, I'm quite old, happens very frequently with the children of friends who call up, you know, perfectly politely and say, my mom said, you could help me. Um, I'm really trying to get this job at, in a, a research job at Harvard. That kind of social capital and the wherewithal to make those calls is very, very hard to come by in low-income communities. There's research that shows, first of all, that that low-income communities have networks, but the networks are quite closed. And you need to be able to access a network of higher status, actually, than your own in order to make those connections. And if anything, um, 
with LinkedIn and and all of the the uh, apps out there for preparing for the job market and finding people, connections have become more rather than less important. So that's one of the main things that we think students need to to learn about. And they they need those skills of. Uh, understanding how social capital works and then learning how to build it themselves and then acquiring those or deciding whether they want to acquire those professional skills uh, that are sort of, you know, being, being uh, middle class in the way you behave and, and in the way you manage yourself that, that are uh, signs to a potential employer who, may give you a two-second look over in an interview or looking at your resume. They'll make a quick decision. You know, what, what's this person's name? Where did they go to school? And do they, do they fit? And fit can hide a, a, a lot of um, unconscious biases or direct biases that, that people read about social class, gender, race, education, and so forth. Well, well, Dr. Hoffman, I mean, it's such an important <laughs> message that I think you have here, and and I will do whatever I can to help uh, get that out to to community colleges and for your universities as well. And I, I mean, how do you plan on, I mean, beyond the book, kind of yeah. pushing this agenda, for lack of a better term? Sure. Well, uh, several ways. First of all, JFF has a very extensive community college practice, and my co-editor and author in the book, Michael Collins is uh, is a senior person in the community college world, highly respected, out speaking all the time. And he was a terrific person to work with. And he brings these ideas to a network way, uh, way beyond the one that I have at this point, although I work a great deal with post-secondary educators as well. So that's, that's one way. The second thing is in more, more micro, um, with two colleagues, I've been doing a good number of research papers about ethnographies of work. And we think that this is a wonderful curriculum and approach for students at community colleges and four-year colleges. So we are forming a learning community. We just had our first webinar. We have colleges participating at this point, really just word of mouth from New Jersey, New Hampshire, Massachusetts, and New York, and actually Florida. So that's a second very concrete way, which is um, helping faculty to see the way in which a liberal arts course like Ethnographies of Work can introduce some of these important questions to students. Well, again, the uh, book is titled Teaching Students About the World of Work. And, and help me with the subtitle. It was a challenge to post-secondary educators. Is that correct? That is correct. All right. Well, again, if somebody wants to find the book, how can they go about doing that? Um, it's available on the Harvard Education Press website. And then uh, I say somewhat reluctantly, I'm sure they can order it through Amazon. Right. But I, I would really urge people to order it through the Harvard Ed Press. The, the cost is the same. And it's a actually a nonprofit per press that is at Harvard, but not supported by Harvard. And uh, they, they would very much love to sell you the book. Uh, I love that. And I will actually link to that site rather than the Amazon site when we put it in the show notes. Um, Dr. Hoffman, are you ready for our pop quiz? Sure. All right. First question. If students could only go to school for one subject, which subject should it be? Writing. 
what are we not teaching in school that we should be teaching? Uh, social about social capital and the labor market. What does every child deserve? To to have a, an education that is practical and supports their passion and that ends with their ability to make choices that they can realize that will lead to at least a middle income um, and a, a family supporting wage. What's the biggest challenge for today's educators? Dealing with uh, race and racism and poverty. What's the best gift to give an educator? That's, that's a tough one. Uh, my, my, my first reaction, because I'm a reader, is, a, is an unlimited uh, expense, expense account that allows them to buy books for the rest of their lives. Yeah, that'd be least, nice. At least 30 a year. But I also think it's empathy and compassion. It, which the latter, I guess, is free to give, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and which teacher changed your life? Well, it's a very long time ago. I am 78 years old. I, I would, I guess I would say a professor who I had as an undergraduate and was my doctoral thesis ad, ad, advisor, whose name was Paul Alpers. He was a scholar of Edmund Spencer and Renaissance literature. But he in, in, encouraged me both to follow my passion, which was to go to Mississippi and work in the civil rights movement, um, and at the same time to continue studying Latin and Renaissance literature and get a PhD. And his field was pastoral, and somehow that's always stuck with stuck with me. The notion that you should you you could have this mental place about pastoral, as well as be an activist and out in the streets. So I guess I would end by saying. Uh, despite the fact that it was hard to kneel for eight minutes and 49 seconds last night uh, at my age with creaky knees, I did it and I'll continue to as long as I can. And last question, pen or pencil? Pen. All right. Again, Dr. Nancy Hoffman, we appreciate uh, all of your time and all the great work you're doing. Um, just, just love the message that you have. And uh, thank you for joining us on Class Dismissed. Well, thank you so much. This was actually very fun. You're a great interviewer. Oh, thank you. That means a lot. That means a lot. <laughs> That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. If you want to send us an idea or comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com or tweet us at classdismissed. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So please subscribe to the show. And we'd also appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes. On behalf of all the good people working at School Status and Christina, representing all those educators out there, thank you for listening. I'm Nick Ortigo, and I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed.